Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhan. Some announcements. Firstly, for the next group of episodes, there will be a mini-series providing an overview of the driver of our global civilization, the capitalist system. What distinguishes this presentation from others is its focus on the changes in consciousness that capitalism has brought about. The changes to the evolving human being that has been and is being created by this process. By way of contrast, each episode will continue the poems and commentaries of the quest that illustrate an archetypal template of the spiritual and psychological journey of healing and spiritual illumination. No matter what the movement of the collective in its technological and materialist developments, there is always the option of personal, emotional and spiritual development, regardless of the age one lives in. For this is the eternal quest of humanity. Secondly, in developed economies, the death rate of the pandemic has reduced. Even the UK's, which had been one of the worst per capita in the developed world. At the start of July, the United States of America accounted for 11% of world deaths, a considerable reduction over the last few months. But it has suffered a recent resurgence in some states. Latin America has become the centre of the global pandemic crisis. With only 8% of the world's population, it suffers 51% of the world's deaths from the pandemic. This reflects its great difficulties in social distancing, its distrust of government guidelines, its large informal sector, over half the working population, who are obliged to go out to work in order to live. To say nothing of the casual, remiss and sometimes macho attitudes of the leaders of the region's largest economies, Brazil and Mexico. The virus increases exponentially and unimpeded, the world could face a pandemic more severe than the 1918-1920 flu, which infected 500 million people, about a third of the world's population at that time, in four successive waves. Its death toll was between 17 to 50 million, one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. By comparison, the death toll from World War I was around 17 million, and World War II around 70 million. So, a pandemic can be equivalent to a world war in fatalities. From the point of view of economics and finance, the developed economies have, broadly speaking, engaged in huge monetary and fiscal compensatory measures. This has included extraordinary levels of support and rescue operation, including for the precarious financial markets. The result has been that many developed economies have been underpinned by a vast expansion of money supply, creating levels of national debt only experienced previously in wartime. The wartime metaphor is increasingly relevant to the times we live in. As the levels of fiscal and monetary compensation diminish, since they can't be sustained forever, then a huge wave of unemployment and bankruptcies will follow. The fissures in the collective of the societies of the West have been gathering apace over recent decades. For example, the growing and extreme inequality of wealth since the 1970s. In 2019, prior to the pandemic, 
the real purchasing power of the wages of United States workers were the same as those of 1972, almost 50 years earlier, while in the same period the United States GDP increased three and a half times. The super-rich of the West have also seen vast increases of their incomes, wealth and their share of GDP. The real losers in the expansion of the world economy in the late 20th and early 21st centuries have been the working and also the middle classes of Western economies, while those in many emerging economies have experienced rising incomes. Income inequality between nations has lessened, while inequality within nations has widened. However, many emerging and poorer nations do not have the resources to fight the pandemic. India has opted for a route that will not involve simply expanding money supply and debt, the method of the West, a courageous and dangerous option in India's case. The pandemic is now reversing many of the gains, the material gains, made in emerging economies over the last 20 years, especially the progress in poverty reduction, as millions of people's livelihoods are now threatened in the world's poorest countries. Since 1990, more than 1 billion people around the world have escaped extreme poverty, according to the World Bank, which defines it as living below $1.90 per person per day. But nearly 100 million people could become unable to fulfil their basic needs this year as they fall between the cracks of inadequate welfare systems, the World Bank forecasts. It is warned that acute hunger could double in 2020, affecting 260 million people. Many advanced economies hold their breath, waiting for more government largesse, which is purely a money illusion, since most governments are hopelessly in debt and simply either borrowing or creating new money supply. The full impact of the economic crisis is now being disguised by vast increases in debt, which postpone the crisis, the economic crisis, but intensify it later. While at the same time, this increases the pressure on the precarious financial system as it becomes inflated with new money supply. Now, I would like to turn to the first major topic of this mini-series, an outline of the structure of capitalism with particular reference to the changes in consciousness engendered by the system. The history of consciousness as a whole can be simplified in three stages. Firstly, the immersion in nature worship, which is broadly the period from 40,000 to around 3000 BC. So if mankind emerged roughly 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens, and if we spent 160,000 years in very basic conditions, some of it quite precarious and difficult to survive. But around 40, 50,000 years ago, behaviourally modern humans developed with advanced artefacts, tools, ornamentation, weaponry and the like. And this period might be thought of as an immersion in nature worship 
up to around the birth of modern civilizations, around 5,000 years ago, or 3,000 BC. Secondly, the emergence of patriarchal religions, which in the Near East and the West were focused on a single transcendent god, a period stretching from around 1000 BC to, let us say, around 1600 AD. And thirdly, and now to be presented, the Enlightenment and the Capitalist Project, the age of materialism and science, in which a new consciousness emerges, eventually dispensing with gods and myths. Each of these are vast periods of history, with numerous sub-periods and developments. The age of religions was challenged in Europe by the renewal of free thinking and science from around the 17th century onwards. Let's call it the Enlightenment Project, Scientific Enlightenment. The new system that crystallised out of the revolutions and transformations of the 16th and 17th centuries was capitalism. Its inner motor was technological transformation. It is the most creative yet destructive economic system in history. The age of patriarchal religions then, which in one form or another dominated the consciousness of humanity for thousands of years, was then challenged in Europe from the 17th century onwards. A growing belief in the findings of science, a series of political revolutions that freed millions from the semi-enslavement of feudal systems, and the birth of the most productive economic system in world history, were a series of Promethean hammer blows that shattered the old paradigms and forged a new order out of the fiery transformations of the centuries that followed. It was also a revolution in human consciousness, which was no longer in a cosmological prison where a scientist like Galileo could be threatened with torture for arguing that the earth goes round the sun. But instead, enlightened inquiry was now free to fly to what height it dared. Britain, central to the scientific and industrial revolutions, was different from ancient Greece, that for a brief period had some of the most astounding free thinkers, including those of science, that the world has ever seen. For Britain managed to develop its freedoms of the market and democracy, while in Greece, these were to perish. Above all, the scientific revolution was to be linked with an economic system that could turn inventions to profit and technologies to world domination. The Greek and also Roman systems, despite democratic components, were founded on slavery, a military system, and for some periods, a dictatorship. Such economies, despite enormous achievements and progress, did not possess the essential freedoms for capitalism to develop. In the field of cosmology, the European medieval Catholic Church was based on a literal reading of Genesis and an acceptance of ancient Roman cosmology through Ptolemy. However, with the Enlightenment, scientific Enlightenment, in those few countries that could tolerate free thought, new knowledge was empirical and subject to testing. The theory of planetary motion around the Sun, like thousands of other scientific hypotheses, can be tested and proven. With this revolution in consciousness, understanding the world was now 
without reference to a god and was reconstructed according to the laws of physics, chemistry, biology and mathematics. This was the first system of thinking that was not mythological, but pragmatic and empirical. A series of theoretical discoveries, including and especially that of evolution, had an enormous impact on our view of human nature and the universe. Immense sources of energy, such as those of coal, electricity, gas, oil and, spectacularly, nuclear energy, transformed human existence and its consciousness. New transport systems revolutionised industrialising economies. The emerging social and economic structures were revolutionary in their impact. The economic system is the altar at which mankind now worships. It's the central reference point, the supraordinate authority and the determiner of wealth or poverty. It determines even the moral values of the population. The end result of the materialist philosophical revolution, however, is a belief in a soulless universe. The market is the new god, except it is empty of inner life. Some will say that mankind is better off without oppressive clerical control, that it is better to live in the pain and isolation of freedom, rather than the false security of misguided totalitarian religions. Yet, what ethic is to guide humanity when it is now capable of destroying its own species and life on this planet? Capitalism, of all the economic systems known to mankind, is the most creative and destructive. Where is its guide? Does it have any principles outside of itself to orientate it? Or is it completely self-referential? Capitalism has raised to unprecedented heights the standard of living of increasing parts of the world's expanding population. How has it done this? Is the capitalist system fundamentally flawed? And how is consciousness part of this process? Were changes in consciousness and belief required for the birth of this revolutionary economic system? Has the consciousness of modern mankind under capitalism changed? It is often debated whether capitalism will be replaced. But the realistic question is whether humanity will be replaced. Or indeed, will avoid self-destruction with the instruments that capitalism and the Enlightenment project has created. In the next episode, we explore the sources of the achievements of capitalism concentrating on the nature of its economic system and what distinguishes it from other economic formations. For example, its dynamism, its relationship to the state, its flexibility and its psychology. Transformations in consciousness and especially religious ideologies have been necessary for its birth in the Protestant countries of Northern Europe and America. Later, it cast off all forms of religious belief creating a new type of consciousness in humanity. The subsequent episode will present capitalism as crisis. In particular, the financial system becomes semi-autonomous and seriously intensifies the booms and busts. In addition, capitalism has a tendency to undermine 
its supposed competitive base by the creation of cartels and monopolies. Capitalism also becomes very dependent on the state, especially in crisis. It creates serious inequalities of wealth and of a special importance, it leads to highly destructive ecological and military crises which threaten our survival on the planet. The subsequent episode will tackle the central question, how has consciousness changed with capitalism? And explores it from many angles. For example, the removal from nature, the diminishing or disappearance of religious ways of thinking, a greater materialism, a more rational and economic viewpoint, greater individualism, a consumerist attitude, greater specialisation, increased education, and greater expectation of freedom and equality. It ends with a consideration of informational capitalism, we might call it, the contemporary situation where consciousness is beginning to fuse with digital systems and artificial intelligence, producing yet another profound shift of consciousness itself, in the middle of which we now live. The final episode presents the shadow of the Capitalist and Enlightenment project, by which it can potentially destroy the earth with economic calculus, greed, destructiveness and malignant impulses for self-aggrandizement. Existential threat to our species is now potentialized. Let us now turn to our contrasting topic. Over the last two podcast episodes, I have presented poems and commentaries on the quest. The pilgrim has reached the midlife crisis and decided to go on a pilgrimage, following a spiritual intuition requiring a search, a quest, for the true centre, a transcendental source within himself, externally represented as the sower and the seed. He separates from family and world and the life he has known, he embarks on a journey over water with the captain, the heroic but unfulfilled hero figure. There is a storm and the captain is lost. This has been his guiding force in the psyche. He continues but falls into a dark night of the soul. Now presented are the next two stages of the journey. He reaches his lowest point, the Nadar, and then there is a light of renewal and he continues his ascent up the mountain. So here, firstly, we have the call of the sufferer. The point of greatest crisis is the opportunity for fundamental change. Unless this challenge is met, the embedded structural defences of the personality stay intact. At the crisis, the ego breaks or loses its coherence, and illusions concerning oneself fade. At this point, the darker parts of the psyche may breach the defences and flood consciousness. There is no guarantee that the subject will sustain or recover from such dark vision. However, a number of positive outcomes are possible. Firstly, there may be a cathartic reaction, where a relief or purging is experienced by the open acknowledgement of these areas of suffering. One may realise that it is a means of progress. Secondly, the dark areas of the psyche, traumas and complexes, 
once their defences are non-operative, may reveal feelings that lie buried beneath. For example, below anger and regression may lie sorrow and a wounded child. Reach the child and feelings may now flood in on the tears of sorrow. Thirdly, higher levels of the personality, unseen by the repressive and filtering light of the ego, may be reached bringing illumination and integration. The poem, following the self-persecutory theme, takes one of the most serious of psychological afflictions, self-loathing. Again, it may arise from cruel parenting where a child has been seriously abused and subject to intense and remorseless criticism. The hate of the parent is internalised by the child and becomes structurally built into the personality. It may occur also if one is forced by intense pressure and circumstances, such as those of warfare, to commit acts for which one subsequently loathes oneself. At the darkest moment of the night, the negredo in the alchemical literature, comes the awakening of the third eye with its transformative illumination and intuition. The higher self awakens at the point of death of the defeated ego. We have then the suffering of deep depression, loss of love and self-criticism. But at the moment of despair, there is an opening of an integrative, transcendental, higher intuition. It's as if a higher power delivers this possibility. The call of the sufferer. Horror now the pilgrim gripped. It pierced him like a knife. I'm nothing but some vermin, scarcely worth a life. Bitter tears began to flow in depths of great despair. He cried out in his agony. His heart released a prayer. Self-loathing is the greatest harm against that which is sacred. It is a pain that can't be borne, deepest of all hatred. Projected onto others, destroy the life outside. Internalise the hatred, this ends in suicide. The other, more creative route, is that the pilgrim sought. Descend into the darkest self, then seek the higher force. Save me, Lord, from such distress, this agony let pass. My pride is gone, my life undone, the devils strip my mask. I yield unto your mercy, I offer up my soul. No one else can save me now. Lord, please make me whole. Eat the dust, all pride is gone. The soul is in despair. Self-loathing is the greatest harm. Now you kneel in prayer. We now turn to the next, and you'll be grateful to hear, lighter stage of the journey. The pilgrim rises with the dawn. The pilgrim carries a staff of healing, which often has a snake entwined upon it. This is the rod of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, and bears witness to an ancient belief that the snake promotes natural and mysterious healing in the psyche and body. In ancient Greece, healing temples, or Asclepian, were visited by pilgrims who sought emotional, physical and spiritual healing. 
These temples or shrines to Asclepius were like alternative therapy clinics in which healing of many different types was found. Dreams and their interpretation were very important to the healing process and frequently the pilgrim or sufferer would stay at the Asclepian overnight where non-venomous snakes freely roamed around. The dreams of the pilgrim, like in-depth psychotherapy, would be of great interest to the physicians and guide the healing process. The snake symbol goes back through the Egyptians to the worship of the Great Mother, where it was one of her animal companions. The serpent became a symbol of evil in Judaism and Christianity, but this is far from the case in other parts of the world, where it is associated with renewal, rebirth, wisdom, spiritual knowledge, as well as healing. The snake is clearly associated with the realm of instinct and therefore its worship points to a different value system to the Abrahamic religions. The rod of Asclepius therefore indicates that underneath the Christian exterior there is a wide and archetypal healing reference. After the dark night of the soul there is the possibility of change. Within the darkness, in the centre of the complex of suffering and negativity, there lies an archetypal core of healing. When approached in the right spirit, as the pilgrim reaches the centre of the Asclepian, the voice within the darkness may speak. It may wish to be released or understood by the conscious mind of the subject. With the emergence of light after the dark night of the soul, there is a burst of energy and healing. Integration of darkness and light is now required. The pilgrim ascends the mountain in good spirits. Here is the poem. The pilgrim rises with the dawn. He seeks the morning light, but pauses then to recollect the shadows of the night. The time has come for wisdom, to listen to the soul. The parts of self must integrate, so he becomes more whole. He drinks the water from the stream and eats a crust of bread. Nature, like a vision, seems. He rises from the dead. And life within the body returns like new day's dawn. He feels there is forgiveness, that he might be reborn. Armed with the staff of healing, the pilgrim now arose. To heaven's light he raised his hands. From lips these questions rose. The nature of the cosmos, the pathway of the soul, the goal of the human race, and what will make us whole. And straight upon his anguish a voice there came full clear. This journey is your destiny, the answer you will hear. Have courage. Rise unto the heights, your old self leave behind. Through death's shadow you must go, a pathway you will find. <laughs>